You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. With misleading information all over the internet, celebrity deepfakes, and scams coming at us from every direction, it can often feel like we're living in the age of misinformation. But in reality, it's always been this way. People have been misleading each other since the dawn of time, using whatever technology they had available. Julius Caesar had wildly exaggerated tales of his victory recited in the streets of Rome. Napoleon used fake newspapers to convince an Austrian army to come out of their stronghold. And in World War I, both sides used airplanes to drop leaflets of propaganda into enemy territory, the goal being to damage the morale of the opposing army. Here's an excerpt from a German leaflet, which was directed at American soldiers. What business is this war in Europe to you anyhow? You don't want to annex anything, do you? If you stay with the outfit, 10 chances to one, all you'll get out of it will be a tombstone in France. By the time World War II came along, the militaries of the world were using radio broadcasts to do the same thing. The British had a radio station called Gustav Siegfried Eins that sent negative messages to German soldiers. The Nazi forces had their own radio station that did the opposite. Their most famous broadcaster was known as Axis Sally. Her messages were often aimed at American women who were waiting for their loved ones to come home from the war. Good evening, women of America. As time goes on, I think of you all the more. Waiting for the one you love. Waiting and weeping in the secrecy of your own room. Thinking of the husband, the son, or the brother. Or seeing sacrificed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, perishing on the fringes of Europe. The Japanese army had their own propaganda station called Radio Tokyo. But strangely enough, the most infamous voice behind Radio Tokyo didn't want to spread propaganda at all. And the fact that she ended up working for the Japanese military really came down to bad luck. This story comes from the podcast History Daily. Here's host Lindsey Graham. It's August 14, 1944, and a U.S. Navy vessel cuts through the choppy waters of the South Pacific. On deck, a young sailor fiddles with a shortwave radio. He and a small group of his fellow seamen are looking for something to alleviate the monotony of another day aboard ship. As he turns the knob in search of a signal, the sailor tells his friends that he hopes they get to hear his favorite show, The Zero Hour. It's a Japanese propaganda broadcast meant to demoralize American and other Allied soldiers. But this sailor loves The Zero Hour because of the good music and the personality of the playful announcer an English-speaking Japanese woman who goes by the handle Orphan Anne. The young sailor hears the crackle of band music and a song nearing its end. He grins, instructing those around him to listen up. It's his show. Hello, you fighting orphans of the Pacific. How strict. This is after her weekend and back on the air strictly under you and I. Reception okay? Well, it better be because this is all request now. And I've got a pretty nice program for my favorite little family, the wandering heads of the Pacific Island. The sailor and his friends laugh at Orphan Anne's description of them as wandering boneheads. They like her teasing voice and American accent. To their ears, she doesn't sound like a malicious foreign enemy, 
She sounds like girls they grew up with back home. The Zero Hour is not the only Japanese propaganda show coming out of Japan, and Orphan Anne is not the only host. There are as many as 20 female English-speaking hosts like her. American servicemen begin referring to them collectively with one now infamous nickname, Tokyo Rose. When the program ends, the young sailor flips off the radio, smiling, thankful for a moment of levity. But back in the United States, the media's attitude towards these anti-American propaganda shows and their English-speaking hosts is far less tolerant. Tokyo Rose becomes a mythical character that appears in cartoons, movies, songs, and American propaganda films as a symbol of Japanese villainy. Here's a clip from a 1945 Warner Brothers cartoon that was released by the U.S. Navy. It features an exaggerated racial caricature of Tokyo Rose. The character is dressed in traditional Japanese robes, but talks like a wacky jazz artist. Hello, you jive artists out there on the Jungle Network. Well, I got a mess of hot platters for you alligators today. Woody Herman, he does he be good in the U.S. government got so worried about Tokyo Rose that they made a movie warning troops not to listen to her. Here's a clip from the movie, where a group of American soldiers listen to the hypnotizing voice of Tokyo Rose. I'm filled with sadness for you because of the thousands of Japanese soldiers safe in caves and pillboxes your bombs and shells can't touch reluctantly waiting to slaughter you. In the end, one host will pay the price for the supposed sins of Tokyo Rose, Orphan Anne. Her real name is Iva Taguri. She is a 28-year-old American citizen of Japanese descent. After the war, she will be charged with treason and thrown in prison. But the question of her guilt or innocence will not be officially answered until decades later on January 19, 1977. It's December 8, 1941, near Tokyo. Through a tinny radio at her aunt's home, Iva Taguri listens to the voice of Franklin D. Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the Empire of Japan. Iva tries her best to translate his words to her non-English-speaking relatives, even though her mastery of the Japanese language is far from perfect. But as she conveys what FDR is saying, she confirms their worst fears. America has declared war on Japan. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. Iva's aunt trembles as she imagines a revenge bombing strike against Japan in the coming days, and Iva places her arms around the older lady to comfort her. Iva is an American, but she's been in Japan for a few months visiting her aunt who has fallen ill. But now, with war on the horizon, she's anxious to get back to Los Angeles and be with her parents. She's concerned about how they might be treated as Japanese immigrants now that hostilities have erupted between Japan and the United States. As soon as she can, Iva visits the American consulate in Tokyo and tries to book an immediate passage back to California. But the official behind the desk explains that this will not be possible. Iva traveled to Japan without a passport, instead using a certificate of identification issued by the U.S. State Department. 
But now that global events have shifted so violently, the official is suspicious of her documentation and skeptical that she's actually an American citizen. Iba pleads, declaring that she is a full citizen, born in America. She majored in zoology at UCLA, but it's no use. The official refuses to acknowledge her citizenship. She won't be allowed to return home. But the Japanese suspect she is an American. And soon, Iba is visited by some intimidating officers of the Kempaitai, the Japanese secret military police. These officers pressure her to renounce her American citizenship. If she does not, they warn, she will be declared an enemy alien and denied a war ration card. Without this, she will have to buy food on the black market at extortionate prices. But Iva refuses. She knows that renouncing her citizenship means she will never be able to return to the land she loves. In America, Iva is considered a Nisei, a second-generation Japanese immigrant. Culturally, she feels she belongs more in California than in Japan. Iva misses American food, American movies, and her American friends. Most of all, she misses her parents. But Iva is desperately short on money, and she needs a job. One of the few advantages she has in Japan is that she speaks fluent English. And soon she finds work at a news agency, translating intercepted broadcasts from U.S. radio stations. Then in November 1943, Iva gets a second job at Radio Tokyo, a broadcasting corporation that produces, among other things, propaganda. Initially, Iva is hired to be a typist, but one afternoon, her superiors unexpectedly ask her to audition to be the announcer on a brand new show called The Zero Hour. Iva learns that this show will be primarily aimed at American troops stationed in the Pacific and is designed to sap their morale and unsettle their loved ones back home. Much to her surprise, the team of English-speaking writers and producers come from a nearby Allied POW camp. Many of them were tortured into agreeing to work on the shows. Iva is chosen to be the announcer by an Australian army major named Charles Cousins, who will write and produce the show. Before the war, Major Cousins was a professional broadcaster. He picks Iva because of her perfect English, her charming American accent, and playful speaking style. But Iva tells Cousins that she doesn't want to participate in anti-American propaganda. She's nervous about saying something treasonous against a country she intends to return to after the war. Privately, Major Cousins assures Iva that he has no intention of committing treason either, for his sake as well as hers. Cousins tells her that they will simply perform an entertaining show that Americans will enjoy. They will play popular records, and in between she will make provocative but harmless comments. The Japanese propaganda officials will not understand that they are being undermined. Cousins explains that they will call the troops silly names like boneheads and tell their Japanese handlers that this is an outrageous insult in America. Liking Cousins' plan, Iva agrees to be the voice of the Zero Hour. Cousins names her Orphan Anne, short for announcer. Soon, she is in the studio with a microphone inches away from her lips. Greetings, everybody. This is your number one enemy, your favorite playmate, Orphan Anne of Radio Tokyo. The little sunbeam he's told you like to cut. We're ready again for a vicious assault on your morale. 75 minutes of music and news for our friends, I mean our enemies in the South Pacific. But Iva wasn't the only voice that American troops heard while fighting in the Pacific. There was also Manila Rose, who broadcast to troops stationed in the South China Sea. No recordings of Manila Rose exist, although her story was turned into a movie starring John Wayne as an officer. In the movie, Manila Rose turns out to be the girlfriend of one of Wayne's soldiers. I know it's tough when the woman you love goes over to the enemy, 
But you can't let her Look, tell you. Look, it's none of your business. That's right. But risking the lives of these men is my business. Over the next two years, Ivo will speak on 340 broadcasts, rarely saying anything antagonistic and often just introducing songs. And yet, once the war is over, she will find herself in the sights of the media and federal law enforcement. That's coming up after the break. Congratulations to Curtis Inley for correctly guessing last episode's mystery sound. That's the singing voice of Gizmo the Mogwai in the 1984 movie Gremlins. It was actually Howie Mandel who voiced the speaking parts of Gizmo. Thank you, Rice. But film composer Jerry Goldsmith opted to hire a young girl he knew to sing Gizmo's song instead. And here's this episode's mystery sound. If you know what that sound is, submit your guess at the web address mystery.20k.org. Anyone who guesses it right will be entered to win a super soft 20,000 Hertz t-shirt. For me, the hardest part of hiring is narrowing down the search, and that's where Indeed can help. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million visitors every month. That makes it the world's largest platform for finding skilled staff. In fact, during the time it'll take me to read this ad, 23 people will have been hired on Indeed. Whenever we list a job, we get a lot of applications. So many of them are from brilliant and talented people. But it can be really hard to have those applications rise to the top. With Indeed's smart matching engine, that process becomes a lot easier. And over time, the matching engine learns your preferences. The more you use it, the more efficient it becomes. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers said that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Right now, our listeners can get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash Hertz. That's Indeed.com slash H-E-R-T-Z. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Iva Tagori was an American citizen who was trapped in Japan during World War II. Since Ivo was a native English speaker with a perfect American accent, the Japanese military coerced her into broadcasting propaganda aimed at American troops. After the war was over, Ivo hoped she could finally get back to America and lead a normal life. But that wasn't going to be easy. It's late August 1945 in downtown Tokyo. The city is now under American control, and it's been all but demolished by bombing raids during the final weeks of World War II. Two American reporters, Clark Lee and Harry Brundage, walk through the dusty, rubbled streets on the hunt for a story. These two reporters, employees of Hearst Publications, are working together to find the one and only Tokyo Rose. It's an impossible task because the one and only Tokyo Rose doesn't exist. She was invented by American soldiers and sailors as a catch-all name for female radio hosts like Iva. 
But on the home front, Tokyo Rose morphed into a single treacherous character used in American propaganda. These reporters have heard rumors that the soldiers who listened to Tokyo Rose became so distraught they committed suicide. And though the rumors are unfounded, the reporters believe Tokyo Rose is real and are determined to find her. The two reporters pay one of their contacts in Japan a healthy sum to find Tokyo Rose, and eventually, they're pointed in the direction of Iva Taguri. Soon, they approach Iva with an offer. If she agrees to sit down for an interview, they will pay her $2,000, the equivalent of a year's wages in Tokyo. Iva tells them she needs time to think it over. She goes to ask her husband's opinion. Iva recently married Philippe de Kino, a Portuguese citizen and pacifist living in Japan. When she tells Philippe that the reporters have approached her, he advises against the interview, warning, the Americans might try to paint you in a negative light. But Iva is desperate to get back home to her parents, who she hasn't even been able to contact since the outbreak of the war. Her husband encourages her to give up on America and become a Portuguese citizen instead, which her marriage to Philippe entitles her to do. But Iva is determined to see her parents again, and to do so, she'll need money. She agrees to the interview. On September 1st, at the Imperial Hotel in downtown Tokyo, Iva talks with the reporters for three hours. As Iva tells the story of her time at Radio Tokyo, she doesn't realize she's putting herself in harm's way. In her mind, she was forced to take the job at Radio Tokyo to survive. And while there, she did her best to undermine Japan's propaganda efforts. Her goal was simply to make money and entertain the U.S. troops. But the reporters have a different perspective. During the interview, they ask Iva to sign a 17-page confession that includes, among other things, confirmation that Iva is the one and only Tokyo Rose. Without scrutinizing it too much, Iva signs the document. Two days after the interview, one of the reporters writes a column that appears in U.S. newspapers. There was a knock on the door of our suite in the Imperial on that hot, humid morning of September 1st, 1945. In came a woman in slacks, a blouse, and pigtails with a red ribbon. Are you really Tokyo Rose? I asked. The one and only, she smiled. The article launches an army and FBI investigation into whether or not Iva committed treason, a crime that carries the death penalty. By late November, Iva is arrested in Japan and driven straight to an American base in Yokohama for questioning before being taken to a prison for Japanese war criminals. During her incarceration, Iva learns that in 1942, her parents were forced into an internment camp by the U.S. government. While detained there, her mother passed away. The news breaks Iva's heart. The hope that she would one day be reunited with her parents had been her North Star throughout the war. That hope is now dashed. During the course of the investigation, American officials find that Iva's broadcasts were innocuous and she's cleared of wrongdoing and released. Her husband, Philippe, meets her at the prison gates carrying a bouquet of flowers. The couple is keen to put this unpleasant episode behind them and move on. But Iva's troubles are only just beginning. Soon she will get pregnant and apply for a passport so she can re-enter the United States and raise her child there. But when this news reaches American shores, it provokes a new wave of hatred. Walter Winchell, an influential American radio broadcaster, begins an on-air campaign to encourage officials to deny her application and try her for treason. And that, ladies and gentlemen, winds up another Jurgen Journal until next Sunday night at the very same time from San Francisco. Until then, and with lotions of love, I remain your New York correspondent, Walter Winchell. Good night. 
Exploiting anti-Japanese sentiment among his listeners, Winchell drums up such intense support that the FBI is prompted to renew its investigation, and soon Iba will be arrested in Japan again. And this time, she will be extradited to America to stand trial. Iva was deported in late 1948 under a full military escort. It wasn't how she'd imagined, but she was back in the United States. It's July 5th, 1949, at the Federal District Court in San Francisco. Harry Brundage sits anxiously in the dock of the courtroom, waiting for Iva Tagore's treason trial to begin. Brundage was one of the reporters who extracted Iva's original confession. It was easy to do. Iva was an ebullient young woman who happily told them about her career as a wartime broadcaster. She looks much different now, a broken figure who's seen hardship. Brundage knows back in Japan, Iva's baby died shortly after birth. Soon afterwards, she was transported in a Navy troop ship to America, where her husband is not allowed to visit her. But these are the wages of treason, Brundage thinks. He's here to see Iva face justice, and Harry Brundage has made sure she will. He's enticed a witness to perjure himself. During the trial, the defense calls Iva's former producer, Major Charles Cousins, who was recently acquitted himself on similar charges in his native Australia. He testifies that, in over 300 broadcasts, Iva never said anything treasonous. The defense challenges the prosecution to produce one instance of Iva saying anything illegal. But a number of witnesses are called against her, including two of Iva's American co-workers at Radio Tokyo, who testify that she did knowingly broadcast treason against America. In an interview with CBS years later, one of the investigators from Iva's case said this. You can't deny the fact that technically she spoke from a script. It was designed to be played over Radio Tokyo to suit their purposes. It's entirely possible that it had no effect on American personnel, but that's not the test for treason. The question is whether you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. After a week's deliberation, the jury finds Iva guilty on one of eight charges. She is sentenced to 10 years in prison and fined $10,000, the equivalent of over $100,000 today. Iva serves six years in prison before being released on good behavior. Separated from Philippe, she moves to Chicago to work in a shop owned by her father to pay off her heavy fine. But she never stops fighting to clear her name. She applies for a pardon to President Eisenhower in 1954, and then again to President Johnson in 1968. Both applications are ignored. At one point, the U.S. Department of Immigration even tried to deport her, despite her being an American citizen. Here's Iva talking about the situation before her deportation hearing. Do you consider yourself a citizen or an alien? Well, I think I'm a United States citizen. I was born here. I don't know what else I could be. But over time, several of the prosecution's witnesses come forward to recant their testimony. They claim they were enticed to commit perjury by various government and media officials, including the reporter Harry Brundage. In 1977, the CBS program 60 Minutes airs a story on Iva's life that catches the attention of officials in Washington. She may be the most famous woman broadcaster ever. Nope, we're not talking about Barbara Walters. We're talking about Tokyo Rose. The segment included an interview with Iva, who was in her early 60s at that point. Who did you want to win the war? There was, there was no uh, question about that. I wanted the United States to win. I mean, there was no question about it. 
I mean, what what would I know about Japan? The only country I knew was the United States. I'd only been in Japan a few months. On January 19, 1977, during his final day in office, U.S. President Gerald Ford issued Iva a full and unconditional pardon. She was 61 years old. For decades, she endured unwarranted hatred and oppression, all because of her association with a name that became synonymous with treason. She was demonized by the media and prosecuted by her government. And yet, despite these injustices, all Iva wanted was to spend the rest of her days as an American citizen. Her father once said that Iva was like a tiger who never changed her stripes. She stayed American through and through. In the end, Iva found justice and cleared her name in America and all across the world, thanks to the pardon she fought for and received on January 19, 1977. She was also recognized for her bravery and perseverance. In 2005, the American Veterans Center gave Iva one of their highest honors. In the citation, they said that Iva had shown courage, patriotism, and loyalty. Iva called it the most memorable day of her life. That story came from the podcast History Daily. On that show, host Lindsey Graham takes you back in time to explore a momentous event that happened on this day in history. What you just heard was a slightly extended version of their show. Over on their feed, the show is delightfully bite-sized. To hear more, subscribe to History Daily right here in your podcast player. 20,000 Hertz is hosted by me, Dallas Taylor, and produced out of the sound design studios of DeFacto Sound. This episode was written by James Benmore and co-produced by Noiser and Airship. With additional material written and produced by Andrew Anderson. And Casey Emerling. And sound design by Joel Boyder. It was hosted, edited, and executive produced by Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. With music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.